Welcome to the show. Man, we got a heavy one today, if I don't say so myself. So the first two stories, are we on the brink of World War III? Wow. We could stop after that. Shit. Uh, Second story is evidence for a new Great Depression is emerging and a colossal apocalyptic stock market crash. We're going to talk about that. Um... I will also discuss how the sexy M&M discourse has finally broken me. My brain just physically snapped in two and fell out of my earlobes when I saw that. Uh, Kirsten Cinema's new approval rating, that story is phenomenal. Can't get enough of that one. Inject it straight into my veins. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was pressured into flipping a very unpopular position that she held. Candace Owens thinks helping uh, homeless people is modern slavery. And... Um, I'm going to talk about the uh, terror attack on Yemen, and MSNBC is now advocating that people be nicer to Joe Manchin. That was the problem. The problem was Biden and the rest of the Democrats weren't nice enough to him. I don't know, man. I'm just, I'm just a humble servant reporting to you guys what's happening. Don't ask me how, how we got that. Don't ask me how the, this is the narrative these people are going with. It's amazing. So anyway, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started, and we'll kick it off with Russia and Ukraine. So it seems like a uh, ridiculous thing to say at face value, but perhaps it's not so ridiculous when you look at the facts. Um, we're playing with fire here, man. That doomsday clock is uh, is not in a good place. We are Uh, perhaps on the brink 
of World War III, which would be obviously game, set, match on human civilization because in the nuclear age, you can't have a World War III. Uh, it doesn't work like that. When you have nuclear weapons, two nuclear-armed powers going at it, to say it's a problem is an understatement. So Russia, China, and Iran are basically prepping and doing like World War III uh, war games. And the situation currently unfolding between Russia and Ukraine is, uh, is devastatingly scary. So I want to go ahead and throw it now to, this is a video from a German public broadcaster, and they're going to give you some of the information. America's top diplomat, Antony Blinken, is in Geneva to meet with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov for make-or-break talks that could determine war or peace in Europe. On Thursday, Blinken was in Berlin, where he held talks with German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock and their British and French counterparts, a meeting meant to show a united front and clear up any misunderstanding about Western unity regarding Russian aggression against Ukraine. The stakes are high. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken landing in Berlin to try and rally America's allies and prevent a war. Unity is the main goal here. Blinken and his German, French and British counterparts discuss the intense fears that Russia may soon invade Ukraine. Their focus, how to credibly deter Moscow with warnings of what could follow. Even as we're relentless in pursuing this diplomatic path, We'll continue to make very clear that if Moscow chooses the path of further aggression, we will impose swift and massive costs. We urgently call on Russia to take steps towards de-escalation. Any further aggression would have serious consequences. But comments by the U.S. president a day earlier have raised questions about whether those consequences really do apply to any act of aggression. Russia will be held accountable if it invades, and it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having to fight about what to do and not do, etc. But if they actually do what they're capable of doing with the force amassed on the border, it is going to be a disaster for Russia. The White House later tried to clarify, insisting that the West would react, come what may. But the issue has highlighted questions over what level of aggression would trigger what kind of response. The U.S. has made it clear that it would expect Berlin to target the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which links Germany to Russian gas. It's also worth noting that gas is not flowing through Nord Stream 2 yet, which means that the pipeline is leveraged for Germany, the United States, and our allies, not Russia. So now, though, there's another round of diplomacy coming up. Antony Blinken will meet his Russian counterpart in Geneva on Friday, seen as one of the last chances to find a way of avoiding war. So the good news is that they're talking, um, and according to Antony Blinken, the talks are direct and open and businesslike, and uh, nobody's playing hide the ball. But at the same time, both sides are kind of playing hide the ball in a different sense because uh, as Russia is insisting, look, we're not going to do anything, we're not going to uh, go into Ukraine, they've amassed, I read, up to 100,000 troops on the border. Uh, and on the U.S. side, you know, we say, well, pff, we're, 
I don't know what you're talking about. We're not uh, involved. We're not interested in the conflict either, but we are sending uh, weapons on top of weapons on top of weapons into Ukraine as well, and also into some of the surrounding post-Soviet states. So, and and by the way, these things are viewed uh, from both sides as red lines. So like the West doesn't want Russia to put any troops on the border, of course. Um, And uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russians don't want the U.S. to send weapons into states bordering Russia. I mean, how would we feel if Russia set up a bunch of missiles in Cuba? Hmm, seems like something like that may have happened at some point in history, and we reacted in a in not such a great way. We were tensions were so high, and we're lucky we escaped without uh, an absolute cataclysm. How would we feel if Russia was uh, funneling weapons into Mexico, and Mexico was uh, an enemy state of ours? I don't think we'd like that very much. So. In order to understand this conflict, you have to understand the history of the region, because a lot of people, I mean, literally every mainstream media pundit, and of course every right-wing commentator, uh, none of them will give you the history of what led to this. They just talk about it as if, usually the default assumption is like, Vladimir Putin is Hitler, and he's trying to take over, you know, every area under the sun, and he has world domination goals, and so, you know, anything we do to try to deter that is just and moral and righteous and, and virtuous. Uh, That seems to be the prevailing uh, underlying narrative and assumption when people talk about this, but it really is not that simple. And it shouldn't surprise you guys in my audience to know that it's not that simple. So in an article in the New York Times, and credit to the New York Times for putting this line in there, although I will say there's an article that came out two or three days ago, and this line was way deep in the article, but nonetheless it's there. So they say, quote, Russia's demands include a legally binding halt to NATO's eastward expansion and a withdrawal of NATO troops from countries like Poland and Baltic nations that used to be aligned with or part of the Soviet Union. The United States has dismissed those demands as non-starters, even as American officials offered talks on other matters, such as military exercises and the placement of missiles. So now also Biden is talking about, he's reviewing plans to send anywhere from 1,000 troops to 5,000 troops, U.S. troops, boots on the ground in the area near Russia's border. Okay, this is getting beyond crazy and reckless and dangerous, of course. So here's what happened. When the Soviet Union broke up, uh, in other words, when the West won the Cold War, we gave our word to Russia, look, we're not going to expand NATO any closer to your border. That was part of the uh, post-Soviet Union deal when we broke up the Soviet Union and created all the post-Soviet states. Um, And ever since we gave them our word on that, we've gone back on our word. And in fact, NATO has crept closer and closer and closer to Russia's border. Now, from the Russian perspective, this is an act of aggression. And again, it's not too hard to figure out why if we had uh, Russia with weapons in Cuba or Mexico or Canada, and those states were nominally either neutral or aligned with them, we would view that as a provocation. So that's the Russian perspective on this. Hey, NATO, get the hell uh, off our, our border. Stop, you know, effectively threatening us here. And you you can see where they're coming from because it's not like the U.S. actually abides by international law and doesn't act in a thuggish way globally. In fact, this is a point that Putin has made repeatedly over the years. The U.S. has 900 military bases around the world. 
we fund 73% of the world's dictatorships. So we effectively have puppet governments that are aligned with us in 73% of the world's dictatorships. We're expansionists. We ignored international law in Iraq and in Afghanistan and with the eight countries that we're currently bombing. And so for us to say, hey, look, you got to abide by international law, but then we violate it on a Tuesday before brunch, that's beyond hypocritical, and your word has no weight when you act like that. Now, the perspective from the West is Vladimir Putin is basically wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union or maybe even go beyond that and, like, take over all of Europe. And, you know, you would see there are people deranged enough to make Hitler analogies and comparisons. Like, you know, that's really his ultimate goal is to take over um, all of Europe, perhaps all of the world. I think that's really hyperbolic. But now we're stuck here in a standoff. Now, in his heart of hearts, does Vladimir Putin probably want to reconstitute the Soviet Union? I think that's probably true. Uh, But I also think it's true that he understands that that's not politically viable or feasible uh, given the strength and power of NATO, and you can't do that without World War III. However, however, we saw a similar thing happen when uh, Russia invaded Georgia. I think that was under George W. Bush. Georgia, not the not U.S.'s Georgia, Georgia, the country. Um, and, of course, we saw it with Crimea in, I believe it was 2014, under Barack Obama. And what happened is Vladimir Putin went into Crimea and effectively said, well, this is ours now. And it is true, this is a part that's, you know, kind of buried in Western media. It is true that the area that he took over, regardless of what you think of what he did there, uh, the area that he took over is basically ethnically Russian and then... Uh, when you ask the people in the area that they took over, something like over 70% of them said they would prefer to be with Russia. Because Ukraine, like a lot of the post-Soviet states, are kind of fake states, and uh, there's all these disparate factionalized regions that don't have a sort of national unity. And what we're talking about now, with the part of Ukraine that Vladimir Putin looks poised to take over, it's a similar situation. And in the case of Crimea... He did it because the Russians needed have access and needed access to a critical port that was there that, you know, they view it as, well, if Ukraine aligns with the West and you have, like, American warships in this port that's right here by our doorstep, that is beyond an act of aggression, that's, you know, almost close to an act of war, it has us boxed in totally and completely, and they fear that the West wants to topple their government and wants to meddle in their affairs. So it's a messy situation, and what you have is, both sides are claiming that they're acting purely defensively. You know, Russia claims they're acting purely defensively because NATO has encroached closer and closer to their border. Um, And by the way, under Donald Trump, a lot of people don't know this, but under Donald Trump, he acted in a very aggressive way towards Russia, despite all the Russiagate propaganda. There was a NATO buildup on uh, Putin's border under Donald Trump. They viewed that as an act of aggression. Um, It was Donald Trump who rejected the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. By the way, that's a pipeline that Biden effectively approved. I mean, I agree with Biden on that because he says, look, hands off, this has nothing to do with me. It's it's an issue between Germany and Russia. And if Germany wants a Russian pipeline going into them, sure, I might not like it as the American president. I want you to buy our natural gas and not Russia's. But, you know, Russia has it cheaper. And if you want to make a deal with them, well, who the hell are we to interfere? So Biden has effectively approved that pipeline. But now they're saying, look, we'll use it as leverage in this back and forth. And you have some psychotic neocon war hawks in the U.S. saying, well, now the round of sanctions that needs to be done is you cut Russia off 
from the entire global banking system. Okay, well, if you do that, then you're definitely asking for World War III because there definitely will be some sort of official hawkish response from Russia. And so Biden took a lot of shit for saying what he said there, but I think he's being honest and open. Now, he's being honest and open, and maybe you shouldn't say it out loud, but he's still being honest and open when he says, look, it'll depend on the nature of, the, uh, of what uh, the incursion is. So it looks like Vladimir Putin is almost certainly going to go into Ukraine, but Biden's larger point there is if you go into Ukraine and you take the area that's already kind of aligned with you and ethnically Russian and wants you there, well, that's one thing. We don't like it. It's bad, but that's one thing. But if you go into the ethnically Ukrainian areas, well, then we have a real problem because they don't want Russia to take them over. And also, we've been arming rebel groups on the ground. By the way, this is a little-known fact, but a lot of the – and Trump armed these people, too. A lot of the uh, Ukrainian rebel groups that we're arming are neo-Nazis. I wish I was exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. So it is a colossally messy situation, and a lot of people are commenting on this without giving the history of NATO. A lot of people are commenting on this without giving any credibility or credence to what Russia's perspective is. Uh, so I'm trying my best here to give both sides of the argument so you see where both of them are coming from. But the fact of the matter is we can't afford this sort of hawkishness and, and rising of tensions. We can't afford it. It's the nuclear age. If there's some sort of miscommunication or one person steps out of line and goes too far, uh, there can be absolutely devastating consequences. I mean, it's already a devastating situation, but it can get a hell of a lot worse. So I hope that cooler heads prevail. And listen, some neocon idiots might say I'm doing appeasement when I say this, but I don't think it's appeasement. I think that the, the simple demands of Russia on this front are reasonable because all Russia wants is to go back to the original deal uh, of NATO, which is you can't get further and further closer to our border. And NATO has been doing that. When NATO was launched, uh, there were only 12 countries in NATO. How many countries are in there now? 30. 30. So we said we're not going to expand closer, closer to them, and then we expanded closer and closer to them. And by the way, uh, there are three countries that currently want to get into NATO, Bosnia and uh, I never knew how to pronounce this, Herzegovina, Georgia, and Ukraine. They're aspiring NATO members, but they're not in NATO. And so this notion that, like, we're going to send American troops to fight and die and potentially start World War III over Ukraine, that's not something I agree with. That's not something I believe in. There was some preposterously high percentage of Americans that couldn't even put Ukraine out on a map in a story that just came out, and you're going to ask people to go fight and die for that? Now, the counterargument is, yeah, but if you let Putin do this, then he's never going to stop. And... I sincerely believe that that's bullshit in this sense. Not everybody's Hitler. Not everybody wants world domination. I don't think Vladimir Putin wants world domination or will try for world domination. I do think in Putin's heart of hearts, he wants to reconstitute the old Soviet Union, and I think that's unacceptable, and nobody would allow that to happen. But in terms of attempting to go back to the original deal when the Soviet Union was broken up, and became Russia, uh, I think that's a perfectly reasonable ask. So I'm going to read it to you one more time here. Russia's demands include a legally binding halt to NATO's eastward expansion. We should do that. And a withdrawal of NATO troops from countries like Poland and Baltic nations that used to be aligned with or part of the Soviet Union. I think that's reasonable. The United States has dismissed those demands as non-starters. 
even as American officials offered talks on other matters, such as military exercises and the placement of missiles. So in other words, the U.S. is saying, look, we won't do, like, war games on your border anymore. Oh, how kind of you. <laughs> you should, should have never been doing that in the first place. Um, and we're not going to have, like, missiles pointed at you from, close, from very close to you. Okay, well, again, that's a tiny concession. It's a good concession, but it's a tiny concession because that never, never should have been the case in the first place. If Russia had missiles in Cuba pointed at us, we'd be like, well, that's basically an act of war, and now we're on red alert, and uh, we're about to assemble the forces to deploy. So I think that what they're asking for is legitimate and fair. I think you just have to go back to what the deal was when the Soviet Union was broken up, which is all of those post-Soviet buffer states need to be just that. They need to be buffer states. They need, uh, they need Australia, or Australia, excuse me, Austria-like neutrality. That's it. I think that's all that uh, Russia wants. And, you know, Vladimir Putin, are there some ethnically Russian areas that he would effectively annex and try to make a part of Russia again? Yeah, and we know because he's already done that. Is that bad? Yes. Is that something to start World War III over? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because I think this mindset, this assumption that, well, he obviously has expansionist goals, and any deal with him is like, is like Neville Chamberlain's deal with Hitler, I simply don't buy that. And generally speaking, the only people who buy that are people who don't have a historical understanding of the region. Um, they don't understand the history of NATO. And people who tend to believe that the United States is always the good guy by default, always acting in the world's best interest by default. We're the world police. And the official baddie nations are just a different breed, and they mean ill for everybody. Uh, that's my sense of it, is the people who don't think these are reasonable asks and don't want to comply with these asks are American exceptionalists, and they've drunk the Kool-Aid of the propaganda that all the baddie nations are, if it wasn't for us keeping them in line, they would lead the world to chaos and devastation and dictatorship and totalitarianism. And they're the main problem, basically. I simply don't buy that. I think that's a, a childish argument. So look, I tried my best to give uh, both sides of the story here. You can determine whether or not my breakdown is fair. You can determine what you think would ease this situation. But I really think the best thing that we could do is go back to the original deal when the Soviet Union was broken up, um, go take NATO back to where it was in, you know, 1995, and just keep it there. And have the, the buffer states be buffer states, be neutral, and leave it at that. Now, if in that situation, in other words, if we, if we give in to and agree to the reasonable asks of Russia, um, well, then we'll take it from there. And you know what? Hey, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe when we do that, if we do that, then Russia tries not only to take over ethnically Russian areas, which is one thing, but also goes further and actually tries to reconstitute the old Soviet Union by force. Well, in that instance, the second that, you know, he gets to a NATO country, all bets are off, and then you do have World War III. And in that instance, that wouldn't be the fault of America. That wouldn't be the fault of the West. That would be the fault of Vladimir Putin, because he would have 
uh, goals that are too expansionist for peace. Um, and if that's the case, that would be my commentary. But as of right now, that's not the case. And the asks, I think, are perfectly reasonable. And unfortunately, I don't think the West is going um, to honor these asks, which are fair. And I think he's going to go into Ukraine. But I think he's largely going to go into just the ethnically Russian areas of Ukraine, which it's not a good thing that he's going to do that, but he's going to do that. And then you just have to hope that Joe Biden is as reasonable as Barack Obama was, and you don't start a war, and you don't uh, engage in kind where we can have escalation to the point of absolute catastrophe. Because in the nuclear age, you can't have two nuclear-armed powers um, in a hot war, because it's just it's too dangerous. And we're all at risk if we do that. So you just have to hope that, because I do think since is not going to agree to the reasonable asks of like, go back to original NATO and stop expanding towards our border. Since the West is not going to do that, I do think Vladimir Putin is going to go into Ukraine in the ethnically Russian areas. And I just hope Biden's smart enough not to escalate from there because that would be devastating. But look, honestly, based on what, Biden said there, it appears like his instinct is the same as mine, where he says, look, if it's just a little incursion, <laughs> then, you know, what are we going to do? Let's not start World War III over that. Um, he said it. I just hope that the pressures behind the scenes from the deep state are not too impenetrable, where he feels like he has to react in kind, which could make everything go out of control. So anyway, there you have the breakdown. I really hope cooler heads prevail. This is a dangerous situation for the world. And... Um, it's not getting as much uh, talk and fair coverage as it needs. People are too busy talking about sexy M&Ms and whatnot, which I will do as well, but this is the meat and potatoes. This is the more important stuff. And um, it's, a, it's a time to cross your fingers if you're you know, superstitious or even if you're not and just hope that we can get through this and, and uh, the power of talking and honesty and negotiations wins out over our more primitive, violent instincts. Okay, next. Guess what? We have another uh, just as scary story. So we led the show today with uh, talk of World War III. Terrifying times for everybody. Well, now... I give you perhaps uh, an, almost an equally scary proposition that there's now evidence of a cataclysmic, colossal, apocalyptic uh, market crash coming and a new Great Depression. So let me go ahead and show you 
you have oh hold on hold on one second why one famed investor is fretting about super bubbles super bubbles okay uh, let's go to the article here one of wall street's most influential voices the british investor jeremy grantham sees an asteroid steaming toward global financial markets his term for what he sees as a growing threat to u.s investors is a super bubble if an ordinary bubble involves an irrationally exuberant gain in the price of some asset. A super bubble is when the cost of several assets all head into orbit at the same time, and this time it's going to be a doozy. Quote, for the first time in the U.S., we have simultaneous bubbles across all major asset classes. Grantham, a co-founder of wealth management firm GMO, said this week in an analysis, over the last 100 years, the U.S. has experienced three previous super bubbles, according to Grantham. The crash of 1929, which triggered the Great Depression, the dot-com meltdown that began in 2000, and the housing bust that precipitated the 2008 financial crisis. Japan also had two separate, or excuse me, two super bubbles in the 1980s when the country's inflated stock and real estate markets crashed. He said, "Red flags. Exhibit A in Grantham's case that the U.S. now faces a fourth super bubble: housing prices." After jumping a record 20% in 2021, housing prices are through the roof, even eclipsing the last real estate crash. Exhibit B, investors have yet again forgotten a key lesson from past financial crises. What goes up must come down. The vast sums of money flowing into meme stocks like AMC and GameStop, cryptocurrencies, non-fungible tokens, that's NFTs, uh, special purpose acquisition companies, and electric vehicle makers are a classic sign of bubble thinking. As Grantham put it, we have the, hold on one second, I don't have the, um, the graphics for those, but I'll just read it to you. We have the most exuberant, ecstatic, even crazy investor behavior in the history of U.S. stock market. Exhibit C, fewer and fewer equities, usually blue chip stocks, perform well, while a growing number of speculative stocks do poorly. That trend, also visible in 1929 uh, and 2000, may be due in part to professional investors crowding into safer stocks as they see the broader market blindly marching off a cliff. In this scenario, confidence first starts to erode for riskier assets. We're seeing that right now with uh, crypto, for example, and like Netflix and Peloton, and then eventually dominoes into healthier stocks as investors race for the exits. Economists such as Hyman Minsky and economic historians, including Charles Kindleberger, have shown that while individual bubbles have distinct features, they follow a similar cycle. Some catalysts, like the emergence of the Internet in the 1990s or the kind of financial innovation that fueled demand for mortgage-backed securities in the 2000s, opens new opportunities for institutional investors to get filthy rich. A bottom ensues as investors pile in. Gripped by fear of missing out, businesses and consumers alike get drunk on debt and bid asset prices up even more. But as the bubble expands even larger, some event eventually brings the, the merry-go-round to a halt, such as the 2008 bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers, that uh, was the catalyst for broader crash, and panicked investors sell whatever they can to offset their mounting losses. Pessimism is on the horizon. As Grantham famous for correctly predicting bubbles and cashing in on them on behalf of his firm's clients, knows better than just about anyone, such events are often hard to predict. But his latest warning comes as even bullish investors are starting to pull back. After reaching new heights in 2021, the stock market is now wobbling. 
driven by a sell-off in technology companies, which entered correction territory this week. The S&P 500 has fallen 7% so far this year. Companies that until recently were the darlings of investors, including Netflix, Peloton, and Tesla, are hitting a wall. In the broader economy, inflation is rising faster than it has in nearly 40 years, straining Americans' budgets and weighing on economic growth. The Fed is moving, possibly too late, to lasso runaway prices by signaling its intent to raise interest rates at least three times this year. But the greatest risk, as in all bubbles, is that a critical mass of investors finally wakes up, said Grantham. Quote, when pessimism returns to markets, we face the largest potential markdown of perceived wealth in U.S. history. The largest markdown of U.S. wealth in U.S. history. That's terrifying. That is terrifying. So there's a million things we could say about this. Let's start with this basic fact. In our current economy, the way it's constituted, when times are, are going well, it's privatize the profits, socialize the losses. So in other words, when the wealthy are doing really well, they don't really take along the bottom 90% for the ride. But when there's a giant market crash, everybody gets hurt. Everybody gets hurt. So like many in the top 10% would get hurt if not wiped out, as we saw in like 2008, for example. That top 1% is maybe recession-proof to one extent or another. Uh, but the bottom 90% would also get hurt, even though they don't come along for the ride for the good times. In the bad times, everybody gets hurt, and you would have even more you know, mass layoffs, for example, uh, pay cuts, and things of that nature. And it appears like the chickens are coming home to roost. Look, this shouldn't be surprising to anybody. And one of the main reasons is we've had this decoupling of the stock market from the broader economy. I mean, this happened decades ago, but it's gotten worse in the modern era, where how could it be that, you know, wages are stagnant, um, workers have been getting screwed for a really long time, but you have... The, the price of assets, like the price of homes, for example, has gone up and up and up and up uh, at a tremendous clip. How is that possible? Well, you know, Richard Wolff argues we've had inflation all along, but it's, it's in things like housing. That's where the inflation is. It's in the stock market more generally. That's where the inflation is. And this is in part because the Fed has pursued this policy of basically backstopping the stock market. You know, and start in 2008, it was put into overdrive during the pandemic. I mean, the Fed was pumping a trillion dollars a day into the market at the height of the pandemic and the original lockdown. And they started buying corporate debt for the first time in U.S. history. So you look at the current situation and part of me says, hey, man, we're out of tricks here. We're out of tricks. And the next time there's a crash, especially if it's a super bubble and you have every major asset, the bubble pops at the same time. What are we going to do in response to that? How are we going to respond to that? How do you avoid the pain and the suffering and the hurt that goes hand in hand with that? But particularly for the working class, how do you do it? So part of me thinks we're out of tricks. And when this bubble bursts, there will be phenomenal pain equal to or worse than the Great Depression. Um, but then the other part of me thinks they're going to find a way to reinflate it yet again, because they've done that every step of the way so far. 2008, they reinflated it. Uh, the, the coronavirus crash, they reinflated it. So what are they going to do? Are they just going to do the same thing this time? But here's the problem. I think the, the pervasive view among elites 
is that big spending is leading to inflation. Now, that's a dubious claim. We've gone over it a thousand times, but 60 or even 70 percent of the new number of inflation is due to corporate greed, where they're taking advantage of the narrative uh, and the panic that there's inflation and they're just raising prices even though they don't have to. It's that. It's a supply chain crisis. It's uh, monopolies. So there's a number of other reasons for inflation, but the pervasive view among elites is that, no, it is because of big spending. So if you have a situation where it's a super bubble and the bubbles burst all at the same time, I think the government, and maybe even the Fed, but I think the government is going to be hesitant to do more big spending, fearing that, hey, if we do more big spending, this is just going to make inflation worse, and we're not going to be able to dig ourselves out of this crisis. And if that's the case, oh, my God, you better buckle up, because that would be a worst-case scenario. That would be embracing austerity politics at the very last moment that you can embrace austerity politics. And the pain and the suffering would be historic. It would be absolutely historic. And we're starting to see everything is unfolding now. So the market is down massively today. You know, the crypto market, there was like a trillion dollars of wealth wiped out um, over a very short amount of time in the crypto market. Bitcoin plunged, like they brought up in the article, you know, Netflix, Peloton, um, Tesla. That stuff goes first. And then when that stuff goes, well, what goes next? Is it, is it going to be housing again? And uh, I wish I had answers for you guys, but I don't. All I know is either they wouldn't embrace big spending again, they would embrace austerity politics at the last time you ever could, which would lead to tremendous pain, or the, federal, uh, the Fed, the Federal Reserve, would get involved and somehow reinflate uh, these bubbles again. And if they do reinflate these bubbles again, then yet again, you have a 2008 situation where the stock market is propped up, the big corporations are propped up, um, you know, shareholders uh, have limited pain, relatively speaking, but again, workers get hosed, workers get screwed. And even now, like the wage gains that we're seeing now are totally wiped out by inflation. So people are actually losing ground, even though they're technically on paper making more money. Look, at this really in many ways shouldn't be surprising to people. And the reason it shouldn't be surprising is you've seen whether it's the rise of cryptocurrency or now the rise of NFTs. I mean, you have like pictures of cartoon apes that are selling for like 50 grand. That doesn't tell you that maybe something's a little off in our economy and times are getting a little weird. I mean, this stuff is incredibly speculative and risky. And the idea that these are, well, these are like safe investments. Are you kidding me? That's not remotely true. So here we are. We're on the precipice of um, apocalypse and Armageddon and economic meltdown and disaster. And so add into the mix a pandemic where still over 2,000 people are dying per day, which is crazy. That's almost like a 9-11 every day. Um, You have that, and you sprinkle in uh, being on the brink of World War III over Russia and Ukraine and what's going on over there. And, of course, the hawks run the deep state and – they want the conflict. We were relying on a half-dead Joe Biden for his better judgment to prevail and for him to say, look, let's not do war over this. Um, and you sprinkle that in with a broken healthcare system where medical bankruptcies are the top cause of bankruptcy in the U.S. and 80 million people are either uninsured or underinsured in this country. And you have all these problems. And uh, now 
you could add total economic calamity on top of it, potentially. See, the one thing is, he makes this point too, and this guy predicted all the other things accurately, but he makes this point too. He says, look, the one thing I don't know is the timing of it. Because you never know when everything is going to come together for the worst case scenario. But what he's saying is, it is eventually going to happen. We don't know when, but it's eventually going to happen. Oh boy. Oh boy. The real thing that you should do when the day comes that everything melts down is at the very least you take a page out of FDR's book and this would be the time to do a new new deal and this would be a time to welcome their hatred the hatred of the top one percent the corporations and the billionaires and you do redistribution of wealth so you tax the wealthy and you fund these colossal job programs and social safety net programs You put the country back to work, and you dig out from the bottom in the only way that we know historically worked, which is effectively social democratic politics, at the very least, at the very least. But my fear is they're going to go either in more of a corporatist direction when everything melts down, so just have the Fed backstop the stock market and corporations and the wealthy, Uh, either that, so the, the corporatist approach, or they'll go full Ayn Rand-style austerity and say, well, oh, because of inflation, we can't do anything to help the working class. And either one of those things is a complete and utter disaster. But something's very off in this economy. We know that for sure. And a lot of the decisions over the years, not just from the federal government, Congress, the executive branch, but decisions from the Fed have really uh, brought us to this point. And this wild, wild west situation of insane speculation and deregulation and tax cuts for the wealthy and uh, basically uh, an economy that's completely out of whack with the reality of the people, well, as I said before, at some point the chickens are going to come home to roost and we may be witnessing that right now. So buckle up. All right, let's go to the sexy M&M discourse. So I'll admit it, the sexy M&M discourse that dropped over the weekend has officially broken me. I am a broken man now. My, my brain sort of split in two and fell out my ears as I was, as I was listening to, to the dialogue. So the first, first time I saw the sexy M&M discourse uh, was a tweet from The Hill and then I read the article on it. And so here's the gist of it. You have these M&M characters, and uh, the previous M&M characters, I guess they were what one would call heteronormative. Um, there was one, I think the green M&M would wear, like, these sexy high heels. It feels ridiculous calling an M&M's high heel sexy, but you get the gist. They were supposed to look like they're sort of big high heels, and she's supposed to be, like, a very traditionally feminine-looking um, M&M. And, you know, I don't remember what the other ones look like. I don't really care. But Eminem thought, hey, in this modern era, let's cash in on, like, wokeness. And so let's scrap all of, you know, the heteronormative Eminems. And they came out with uh, a a more diverse group of Eminems, which is kind of funny if you think about it, because the old Eminems, they were all different colors. And that's, you know, by definition, diversity. But they wanted to go a couple steps further and so like 
they got rid the sexy Eminem. They made no longer sexy. They were like, okay, let's make her heels lower and you know, have her embrace whatever her ambiguous uh, gender identity is. And then you had the one that made me really just like I, I, I was like, seriously, this is what we're wasting our time doing now. Uh, this is how the capitalists are trying to get money off the youths. Uh, they have one of the M&Ms. I think it was the orange one, but I could be wrong. I don't remember. Uh, is uh, anxious, so he has mental health issues, and he looks like you know he's like an like shaking or whatever. And people were joking online. Look, I can finally relate to one of these M&Ms. Look, it's, everybody knows this. Woke corporations go in the woke direction because they feel they can make an extra buck that way. That's the point. And so they're trying to like appeal to the younger generation, so that the younger generation says, "Oh, look." Here's an M&M with pink hair, and I have pink hair, so now I feel represented. Aren't M&Ms awesome? By the way, nobody reacts like that. I don't care how, uh, you know, uber woke some college kids are. None of them are going to see a corporation trying to cynically use their ideology and then go, well, now I love Nestle. And it's actually not Nestle. It's Mars Company. By the way, as they're doing this whole, like, we're cool, we're hip, we're with it, we're like, we're an ethical company that fits in with the cool younger kids. As they're doing this charade, just so you understand, uh, there was a lawsuit that Nestle and Mars, the company that makes M&Ms, and some other uh, companies that are in the chocolate market and candy market, they've used slave labor overseas. There's a Supreme Court case about it, or a, a court case about it. So they're like, we're really ethical and moral. Look at our, like, you know, gender-neutral M&Ms or whatever. Look at our uh, mentally ill M&M. We're trying to respect everybody and show everybody uh, that we, we believe in diversity and inclusion. As they're doing that, they're, like, using slaves. Everything is so annoying. So, anyway, I, read, I saw that article, and I was rolling my eyes. I'm like, Jesus Christ. It, it's this attempt of corporations to be like, we're going to be relatable. You know, you see it, like, McDonald's Pakistan tweeted, like, I miss you the other day. They, they have these, this banter back and forth with different major corporations where they try to be edgy or whatever. It's like, oh, my God, stop, stop, stop. This corporatocracy is out of control, and I hate all of you, and you're all cynical and exploitative, and you need to stop. So, anyway, that was my reaction to the woke M&M stuff. Well, then Tucker Carlson comes out, and he does – a segment on it, where he says this. The other big change is that the brown M&M has, quote, transitioned from high stilettos to lower block heels, also less sexy. That's progress. M&Ms will not be satisfied until every last cartoon character is deeply unappealing and totally androgynous, until the moment you wouldn't want to have a drink with any one of them. That's the goal. When you're totally turned off, We've achieved equity. They've won. So then I saw that, and I realized, wait, that's ridiculous, too. So he's, like, genuinely outraged over this, and he's like, I want to wanna fuck this M&M. I guess it was the brown one and not the green one. Whatever. I want to want to have sex with that M&M. Why can't that M&M be sexy? Why can't that M&M be fuckable? Why can't that M&M look like that? Bring that one back. So he's trying to say that like this M&M's 
marketing ploy is like evidence of the downfall of modern society. All right, dog, too far. And so what's my ultimate takeaway? Because this is my ultimate takeaway. And I've had this take before, but I was a bit of a hypocrite when I first overly reacted to the woke M&M's, you know, branding change. All this is stupid. All of this is a distraction. This is just culture war garbage. It's red meat to the base of the insane, socially obsessed, like social issues obsessed, cultural issues obsessed. So to be fair, I haven't seen anybody who's like really in favor of what M&M's did here. So there is like, I don't think the left actually is like embracing crap like this. They know how hollow it is. They know how useless it is. They know how cynical it is. So on that side, I don't see much like overt support for it as if this really matters. Um, But on the right, you do see, it's almost like the social justice warrior versus anti-social justice warrior thing, where the social justice warriors originally were the screechy ones who were so pissed that some female video game characters looked sexy and like had big boobs or whatever. They were so mad about that and so angry about that and so loud and aggressive about that and so focused on that that they looked ridiculous. But then the anti-social justice warriors who would respond to them, they became the social justice warriors because eventually over time, they started arguing that like, you know, any new movie or video game that has like a black lead character, that that's like the downfall of society. Well, hold on. Well, previously what you guys were saying is it doesn't matter what the race of the person who's the lead is. Like, just tell me a good story. That was your old position. But now your new position is that person better be white. So then you are the social justice warrior. When you anti-social justice warrior so hard, you become the social justice warrior. You become the culture war obsessed freak. And that's exactly what Tucker's doing here. Guys, at the same time we're having this conversation, uh, we're on the brink of World War III over Ukraine. Russia is amassing troops on the border of Ukraine, and uh, the West is sending a gargantuan amount of weapons to rebel groups in Ukraine. By the way, some of them are neo-Nazi aligned, and tensions are rising, and we got to step back from the brink here, and cooler heads better prevail. But as that's going on, this is the conversation we're having. We're talking about M&Ms. We're talking about M&Ms and their stupid marketing scheme. At the same time, we just covered the story of an investor who's had a phenomenal track record of predicting massive downturns and crashes. He's like, hey, it's coming right now. We have a super bubble where you're going to have a downturn in the stock market and in housing prices and everything all at once. It's going to be cataclysmic. And as that's happening, we're talking about M&Ms and if we should fuck the brown M&M. Why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? So, look, I mean, my job, unfortunately, in some ways, my job is also to comment on this stuff, but my commentary on this stuff is always going to be, why are we even commenting on this stuff? Why are we talking about this stuff? Because it it's all a distraction. It's all a distraction. They want us fighting over dumb shit like this so that the wealthy can run out the back door with all the money and the economy can continue to be rigged uh, to the benefit of corporations and billionaires and workers keep getting screwed and the military industrial complex can keep 
bombing a thousand different countries and having 900 military bases and sending weapons to 73% of the world's dictatorships, all these problems, and we're talking about having sex with M&Ms. So the whole cult, culture war stuff has melted our brains. And what's amazing is how well it works, how good the diversion works. Now, it's not a, it's not, don't get it twisted. It's not like a strategy on the part of the CEO of M&Ms to like, let me distract from the military-industrial complex and the class war. <laughs> no, it's not, it's, that's not what it is. But that is the effect it ultimately has, where all this political energy is now wasted talking about how hot the M&Ms are. So look, uh, my, my final conclusion on it is very simple. It was absurd and silly and ridiculous and pathetic and pedantic and a pandering shit show to, for them to change their marketing strategy in the first place to try to be more inclusive in a way that's silly, you know, uh, that was dumb. But also, the reaction has been equally dumb. So I just think we're all dumb, including me, for commenting on this at all. Can we please focus on more important things and more serious things? For the love of God. We have like a historic number of problems that we are currently facing. And what's the next discourse going to be? What have we had? We've had Dr. Seuss, Mr. Potato Head, M&M's. I'm sure at some point Carrot Top is a white nationalist or something is coming down down the road. And I don't know if I'll get there because, like I said, this has broken me. All right. Okay, Kirsten Cinema. Here we go. So I've been told by the media that, um, look, you don't understand it. You're just a stupid leftist, and um, you're not strategic enough. You're not intelligent enough. You don't know how to win elections. You don't know what's popular. And we've been told in no uncertain terms. The reason Joe Manchin has to act how he acts is he's a senator from West Virginia. West Virginia is not all that left. Sorry, buddy. Wake up. The reason why Kirsten Cinema acts the way she acts is that it's, it's ideological. It's intelligent. She's repping the voters of Arizona. That's what she's doing. It's not like California or New York or Hawaii or some more left state. So it's a matter of necessity. It's a matter of political ideology. And it's a matter of honor. And she's, she's a person with integrity who's just repping the people of her own state. Well, now we have some new numbers. We're going to see just how true that is. So take a look. Cinema's favorable rating among Arizona Democrats at a whopping 8%, according to civics, 8%. She has 80% unfavorable among Democrats, 8% favorable. And you can see when the switch started happening. You can see it was February when the switch started happening, and then by, like, March 1st, total tank. That was probably when we were getting the reports that she, you know, totally sold out to corporate America and was representing Big Pharma over the people of her state and was acting in the most disgusting, corrupt way imaginable. So, by the way, I also happen to have her numbers here. You didn't see them on that tweet there, but I have her numbers here overall. Overall, she has a 27% favorable rating. Congrats. 
you're now in low Dick Cheney and George W. Bush territory, 27% favorable. And so now among Republicans, she has a higher approval rating. But notice something. When you're a Democrat and you give Republicans like everything they want, because her whole stance on Build Back Better is like, no, there's a thousand provisions in there that are fantastic, that all poll individually very popular. Kirsten Sinema stands there and says, no, no to that, no to that, no to that, no to that. No, www.no.com.org.net. She says no. 44% favorable among Republicans. So even giving Republicans everything they want in this negotiation, Republican voters, less than half of them are still like, okay, we like you. So even if you do exactly what they want, they don't like you. Hmm, it's almost like there's a lesson in here somewhere. And the lesson is, Politics 101 is don't abandon your base if you want to remain popular. Now, that begs the question, though. Does she want to remain popular? Why is she doing what she's doing? Well, look, one of the theories I floated early on as definitely a possibility when it comes to Kirsten Cinema, is that she has no interest in running for re-election. And she wants to get out of D.C. and cash in. You know, sit on her ass all day, all year, and get paid a million or two million dollars from some corporation that she uh, super served when she was a senator. And that's now looking more and more likely by the day, because there was no grand strategy here. But if I just act more centrist, I will be viewed as a maverick like John McCain, and it'll be wonderful. Well, here you go. You acted as a maverick and that you, you know, stabbed Democrats in the back, and now virtually nobody likes you. 8% approval rating among Democrats. Now, I would love, I'm waiting for my apology from mainstream media. Because they said, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. She has to act like this. It's Arizona. That's how the state is. So she has to act like this. It's ideological. She has integrity. This is really, these are really her positions. It turns out none of that was true. And it didn't make her more popular. It turns out we were right all along. Now, what was our position all along? Follow the money. That was our position. When she ran for, back when she was in Congress, she ran on lowering prescription drug prices. Now she's in the Senate. She raised a million dollars from Big Pharma, and she flipped and said, no, I'm not in favor of lowering drug prices now. I don't want to lower them at all. So what accounts for that? It's because they paid her. This is corruption. This is, that's a bribe. Now they pretend, well, it's just a campaign contribution, and that's different. Oh, is it? Then why does it predict the way these politicians act across the board? Because it's not... It's not like a free speech issue like the Supreme Court would have you believe. It is a corruption issue. And this is the result. So I'm waiting for my apology from the mainstream media. Because they thought she was some electoral genius who is doing what she has to do for her state. And it turns out her state despises her. You have to wonder, are the people in mainstream media just not intelligent enough to figure this out? Are they just dim? Or was it purposeful? Was it purposeful to argue the things that they argued? They know they're wrong, but they're saying it anyway, because that's what they're supposed to say. They're supposed to put a veneer of seriousness on the clown show that is Washington. I don't know what the answer to that is, but frankly, I don't care. Either way, they were wrong, we were right, and everybody needs to understand that, everybody needs to know that, so you know who to trust in the future when we talk about these things. She is despised for good reason. Because people know she's not fighting for them. She's fighting for her donors. And this is the main problem in Washington, D.C. 
and it all goes back to that Princeton study, which came out years ago now. There's almost no correlation whatsoever between what your average voter wants and the policies we end up getting. But there's a very direct correlation between what the wealthy want and the policies we end up getting. That's a problem. That's when you are functionally an oligarchy or a kleptocracy. You're no longer a representative democracy and a constitutional republic at that point. And the system is beyond broken. It's why Congress always has an approval rating as low as 7% and as high as like 25%, and why we're on this endless cycle from hell. But the fact of the matter remains, she's despised. We knew she'd be despised. And now she will likely um, go cash in. Not good. Biden played his cards wrong every step of the way to get these people to fall in line. And um, here we are. If Democrats are only as good as their most conservative caucus members, then the Democrats are just Republicans. And we have two Republican parties in this country. The Republican Party and the Republican Light Party. That seems to be the reality of the situation. Okay. All right, guys, let me take a quick break. When we come back, Nancy Pelosi was pressured into taking a good stance, and we'll talk about Candace Owens and um, the bombing of Yemen. Stay right there. We will be right back.
We are back, bitch. All right, welcome back, y'all. Let's keep it going. Still got some doozies for you. Still got some bangers for you. Okay. So, shock, shock, everybody. Nancy Pelosi was pressured into flipping her position on a stock trade ban for Congress. Take a look at this. Here's a look at the support for banning Congress members from stock trading by poll. Data for progress, 74%. Fox, 70%. Morning consult, 63%. So this is, needless to say, a very popular issue here. Um, Huge chunk of the country says, of course you should ban it. Pelosi now says she's open to banning stock trades by members of Congress. This is in Market Watch. House Speaker had previously argued that lawmakers should be able to participate in the free market economy. Um, Now she says she's open to it. Her quote is hilarious. Let me pull that up for you. Um, She said, I have great confidence in the integrity of my members. They are remarkable. So when people talk about, well, somebody might do this and somebody, I trust our members. Pelosi told reporters at her weekly press conference on Capitol Hill, quote, to give a blanket attitude of we can't do this and we can't do that because we can't be trusted I just don't buy into that. But if members want to do that, I'm okay with that. So in other words, she's like, look, I don't really see the problem with it. Like, we should be allowed to do it, but if they want to do it, okay, fine, I guess. Really, you don't see a problem with it? Let me explain to you why you don't see a problem with it. You don't see a problem with it because your husband has made millions of dollars um, in the stock market based on whatever information you're giving him. Shock, you always beat the market. Other members of Congress always beat the market. There was just a report on this from Unusual Whales. You guys always beat the market. Now, are you just phenomenal investors, or do you have inside information so that you know what's going to happen? I'll give you one example. There was all this talk about antitrust as it applies to, I think it was Google. Was it Google? I think it was Google. Yeah. And um, so there was some, some committee hearing on this, and there was some legislation that was being floated. And as soon as... Nancy Pelosi learned, okay, or even crafted it so that, well, this is really toothless what we're talking about here, this particular antitrust measure that we're looking at. It's toothless. She told her husband that. Her husband bought a lot of stock in Google, and then as soon as the rest of the country learned, hey, that's toothless, as was reported in the media, Google stock went up. So they got in when it was lower, knowing it would go up, and then it went up. That's just one example of how Nancy Pelosi's husband beats the market and uh, how other people in Congress beat the market. And, um, I mean, this is, it's insane. It's not already illegal. These are people who vote directly on our laws and what they should be. And they have massive conflicts of interest, obvious conflicts of interest. So they're not going to make decisions that are for the improvement of society and the American people, they're making decisions that impact their bottom line. And it's, it's not just that, by the way. I mean, this is a clear, egregious example of self-dealing. But you also have, of course, as, as you all know, because of campaign contributions and the like, they vote in a way that serves their donors, serves their corporate donors, serves the billionaires. So this is what Congress does. And this is an area, again, you want to talk about bipartisan agreement. This is bipartisanship I can get behind. 
what you find is when you poll the American public, there's often bipartisan agreement on issues, often. Um, but usually the bipartisanship that's in Washington, D.C. is bad bipartisanship because it's like bipartisan agreement to deregulate Wall Street more, bipartisan agreement to start a new war. But the people generally have a positive bipartisan beliefs. This is one of them. And so you had John Ossoff snubbed Pelosi in releasing this legislation. You also have Josh Hawley proposed similar legislation, although it's different. I think Hawley doesn't have nearly as much teeth as the Ossoff bill, so Ossoff is better. But I hope something gets done on this because, again, it's, there's so many things that are legal that obviously shouldn't be legal. And you have to drag Nancy Pelosi kicking and screaming to that position, which leads to my final point, though, which is I'm sure they're working on the loopholes, baby. I'm sure they're crafting loopholes where they can still get away with making money off their insider information because they're crooks and they're criminals. And uh, just because uh, the guys are dressed all wearing suits and ties and all serious and the women are looking all professional and whatnot doesn't mean that they're not thugs. And they do thug shit all the time. This is a great example of it. And I guarantee you that whatever legislation ends up passing is going to have tremendous number of loopholes. I hope I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, I'll be the first to come out here and admit that I'm wrong. As you all know, we shall see. But it's positive she was dragged to the right position. We just have to keep a close eye on it from here. Okay. Next. Candace Owens, Candace Owens uh, went on Tucker Carlson's show, and uh, she made quite a claim about what constitutes modern-day slavery. Take a look. Look at these inner cities and you go, why, are they, why do they want these problems? Why are they funding these problems? Why do they want drug addicts? Who on earth would ever fund the center to let, allow people to do drugs? When you're looking at a government that wants a system of dependence, to me, I look at the situation and I say, what we're seeing is a modernized system of slavery. This is slavery in, the 2020, in 2022, and they are proliferating this under the guise of COVID-19. I, you know, I, I agree with you. I agree with every word of that. I wish I didn't, but I, I sincerely do. I, I wonder why there isn't at least one city in America that says, I don't care what the court, I don't care what anybody says. You can't crap on my side. Like, that is, I, I think, the way that all civilizations have always reacted to threats like this, like drug addiction and vagrancy. Why does nobody do that now? Nobody does that now because there's been such a federal overreach. And, and I will say in America, the one guard that we have against this is state rights. Thank God for governors that are standing up and saying absolutely not, no matter how, how hard the Biden administration tries to overreach and say, we are absolutely going to have to have this. We need to fund more money, more money. The government is creating problems because they want you to turn to the government for answers. And I always say black America was the experiment with this. So aiding homeless people is modernized slavery. So it's not the homelessness that's modernized slavery. It's not, say, wage slavery that's modernized slavery, so working a full-time job and not making enough money to survive. No, it's aiding homeless people that is modernized slavery. The way that the right talks about homelessness is astounding. You know, their, their main answer is like criminalization. You know, uh, make it illegal, lock them up, throw away the key, 
Or like Tucker said there, hey, buddy, you can't crap on my sidewalk. Move on. Okay, well, where's that person going to move on to? They're going to move on to another place where they might end up crapping on the sidewalk. So how do you actually address this? Well, we know. It's not some mystery. Finland has nearly eradicated homelessness. How do they do it? A housing first policy. The way it usually works in, in most countries is there's all these hoops you have to jump through in order to, um, you know, get through the system, have a roof over your head, and there's just too many hoops to jump through. In Finland, they did a housing first policy. Look, you, we're just going to put a roof over your head. Well, they nearly eradicated homelessness. Wow, what a shocker. Turns out homeless people are missing homes. And if you give them homes, then uh, they're much better off. Now, I get it. This is where people turn around and say, well, hold on now. Because there are people who work to put a roof over their head. And so if they're working to put a roof over their head, aren't you incentivizing people to just not work and still have a roof over their head? Well, the answer to that, based on the data we have, is that doesn't appear to be what happens. It's not like people who work full time then turn around and say, well, since the homeless person has a roof over their head, I'm going to now be homeless too or now not have a job too or um, stop doing the things that I like doing too. No, that, that actually doesn't happen. Um, but that's why either way you, you give them a reasonable accommodation. So it's not about like, hey, the homeless person needs to have you know a pool in the backyard and um, a yacht and 2,000 square feet. No, just a roof over their head. Look, Utah, I think, did a, a great job uh, nearly eliminating homelessness as well. They're a very conservative state. But if you actually are dedicated to it, you can do it. You know those, like, they're almost like mini houses. I just read an article the other day. I forget where it was happening, but uh, somebody took the initiative to build a bunch of these things and just give them to homeless people. Um, that works, man. That works. Now, don't get me wrong. That's not all you have to do. So you should do housing first and then also have other things to help them, like, for example, um, mental illness treatment. I mean, this should be part – any Medicare for All system, universal health care system, should also have universal mental health as part of that. And, you know, help with that. Assistance with drug addiction is another thing that would be very useful. Just having a society that generally cares and gives people various safety nets to fall back on when times are rough, that would ameliorate the problem. And like I said, we have all the evidence in the world that this is the path you go down. Housing first, aid with the mental illness, um, aid with drug addiction and things of that nature. But beyond that, there have been a number of studies now that show if you give homeless people a roof over their head, you know what happens? It saves the taxpayers money too. So if your concern is like fiscal responsibility, well, guess what? This is a, a lucky and rare issue where um, you can align with actual moral leftist ideas. So it is both the fiscally conservative thing to do and the, the morally correct thing to do to put a roof over uh, homeless people's heads because according to one study, uh, it saved taxpayers 49.5%. 49.5%. A chronically homeless person costs taxpayers an average of $35,500 and $78 per year, and then you basically cut that in half if you uh, put a roof over their head. So it's like 17 and change if you put a roof over their head because you have all these, other, all these other problems and ways in which homeless people have run-ins with the system if they're actually without a home, without a roof over their head, without safety and security. 
whether it's, you know, run-ins with police officers and the cost of having them in jail or, or whatever the case is. There's a, a, uh, the medical system. How much more often are you going to be in the medical system and, and have to use that if you're out on the street? So the answers are actually relatively obvious, but they're not talking about this in a reasonable humanitarian way. They're talking about it at, you know, like we have parasites or vermin that need to be eliminated. And that's always the problem with how the right talks about homelessness. Apparently, it's modernized slavery to help the homeless is what uh, they're describing there. It's part of conservatism that never appealed to me, that always made me sort of cringe, is this weird insistence that, like, well, actually, the people who are worse off in society are somehow getting one over on, on you, my loyal right-wing viewer. And that drives me crazy. And what people need to realize is if you're, if you're in the middle class, you have a lot more in common with a homeless person than you do with a billionaire. You do. You have a lot more in common with a homeless person than you do with some CEO of a giant multinational. You do. And Class solidarity is important, and what's good for the homeless people, the social safety net programs that are there are good for the working class as well. It's even good for, like, the upper middle class. It's good for everybody. So there you have it. Helping homeless people is modernized slavery, according to some of the dumbest right-wing charlatans in the country. Okay. All right, let's move on. We are going to talk about terrifying new polls, new polls that I do not like. So we have some new uh, concerning polling data that came out about the health of the country. Let me show everybody here. So this is from NBC News. Can the nation come together? In 2010, 45% said no, 50% said yes. In January 2022, 70% said no, 27% said yes. That's amazing. At the bottom of the screen there, do you believe American democracy is threatened? 76% say yes. 76%. See, when I read this poll, it makes me sad. And the reason it makes me sad is that I feel like people have um, succumb to an illusion. And look, you see it in your own personal life, right? If you have holiday events at your house or at a family member's house and you go there and it's Thanksgiving and you got your right-wing uncle who's annoying as fuck and you got, you know, the uber-lefty uh, cousin that you have and in some ways it feels like, hey, a lot of these problems are irreconcilable and there's just totally different worldviews and stuff, and you feel like, damn, this. How do we overcome this? How do we like govern a country that has just a lot of variation in the building blocks of your basic worldview, even from just the premises of what you think is important? There's massive disagreement. Um, but as I've told you guys all along, a lot of the disagreement is just an illusion. 
It's just an illusion because we're all getting screwed by the same people and by the same system. Whether you're some hardcore Trumper in the middle of the country who scrapes together like 27K a year doing odd jobs to help people uh, with construction shit around your town, or you're some kid graduating into a devastatingly terrible economy where you can't get a job and you're stuck in your parents' basement. The, the problems are the same. The source of the problem is the same. And the solutions are the same. And unfortunately, I, I look, I hate to jump on the bandwagon of like the social media bashing, but I do think they, have, they are responsible for some of the problem here, whether it's Facebook or Twitter um, or mainstream media, of course. These are outlets that have massively ramped up negative partisanship. These are outlets that hyper-focus on culture war stuff that makes people believe we can't find any sort of common ground with the people who disagree with us. And I just think that's wrong. I just think that's a total illusion. I think that that stuff is pervasive, particularly because it distracts from the fact that we're all in the same boat. And that boat is slowly but surely sinking. And so when you look at these numbers, 70% says the nation can't come together. I don't even know what that means. What does that mean the nation can't come together? If we have a government that actually gets in there and starts representing our interests, I do think people will come together. I absolutely do. I think if you have the basic needs of the American people are met and you don't have this sense of scarcity where it's a zero-sum game, then I do think people will come together. There tends to be fewer scapegoats when people feel like they don't need a scapegoat. If there's a chicken in every pot and everybody's doing relatively okay, uh, people will have a more harmonious attitude and would be willing to unite more. And we're always going to have our disagreements on certain things. There's always going to be a divide in this country when it comes to social issues and culture war stuff. But it's absolutely possible to massively turn down the volume on that stuff to make the disagreements more manageable and less severe. And when you look back at May 2010, I mean, we're talking like Tea Party time, and still 50% of the country thought, of course, we could come together. Now that number's down to 27%, 70% say we can't come together. That's what they want you to believe. They want you to believe that we can't come together. They want you to believe that it's impossible. They want you to believe that your fellow American is the enemy. But your fellow American is not the enemy. Your fellow American is a fellow victim. And we know what the problem is. The problem is that corporate money and billionaire money has flooded the government, and the government now represents solely the interest of corporations and billionaires. And that's devastating. Add in the defense contractor money, military industrial complex money, and there's your endless war. And so instead of keeping our eye on the ball and knowing who the enemy is, we've all turned on each other. It's fine to, to, to disagree, but not want to slit each other's throats. And I think people have lost sight of that in many respects. But we need to be reminded of that fact. And even the idea, do you believe American democracy is threatened? 76% say yes. Now, I'm sure people interpreted that differently, like the, the question differently, do you believe American democracy is threatened? Maybe some people on the right interpreted that as like, you know, some foreign outsider threat is going to undermine us or something. I don't know. 
but when I read that, I mean, my answer is like, we don't even have a functional democracy anymore. So of course it's threatened. It's been threatened and in many clear ways defeated. It's been replaced with an oligarchy and a kleptocracy. So on that front, I mean, maybe that one's not as concerning to me as the can the nation come together one. But um, we got to break out of this pessimism, man. We got to break out of it. And it's just gotten worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And we're seeing the fruits of that now. I mean, people who are hardcore Trump-based supporters who are still in his camp and versus people, resistance liberals who may still love Biden. I mean, that's different planets that they seem to be on. But understand, those groups are relatively small compared to the, the general population. And we, there was a poll the other day that we discussed where, what was it? It was only like about 25% or 25 or 29%, somewhere in that range, are the people who identify as Democrats or Republicans and part of the party. Um, but then you had over 40%, like the bulk of the country was independent. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have political views, like some lean right, some lean left. It's actually about a 50-50 split within that 40-some-odd percent. But... That tells you there are more non-Kool-Aid drunk partisan losers in the country than anybody really thinks or acknowledges. And so we got to break free from this, man. The, the title, Downhill and Divisive, Americans Sour on Nation's Direction in NBC News Poll. Well, it's perfectly reasonable to sour on our direction because our direction has been wrong for decades. Ever since Ronald Reagan and the turn towards deregulation and tax cuts for the rich and the era of big government being over. It's been brutal for everybody. The New Deal era has, you know, was shivved, was stabbed in the back and the knife was twisted. And uh, that was the only thing that was holding together the fabric of a nation in a sense. Mutual social safety net uh, programs that were there for the benefit of everybody. And then when those were obliterated, we slowly but surely got worse and worse and worse in terms of hyperpartisanship and in terms of negative feelings towards each other. I am optimistic that we can turn it around, but I think it, it will take a lot of work, and I think it will take structural change in this country because the conditions are so brutal that it becomes a dog-eat-dog world with brutal conditions. I think that's almost an inescapable reality, not just of Americans, but of any country that has vicious and brutal conditions that are oppressive against the people. So uh, not good poll numbers, but it could be worse. And we, we're going to work on making it better. And, you know, it's almost amazing it's not higher, given just how much everybody feels screwed right now. I mean, look at the pandemic that we have going on, on the brink of World War III over Ukraine, uh, on the brink of the markets tanking today. We're on the brink of a super bubble bursting, which would be worse than 2008. And uh, it's almost amazing that the numbers aren't higher, but uh, a lot of work to do to get it back in the other direction. Step number one is making everybody believe it's even possible to go back in the other direction, which I definitely think it is, even though it's hard. Okay, next. So we have uh, a terrible story here coming out of Yemen. This didn't get nearly as much coverage as it should have. In fact, it was very hard to find any 
U.S. sources or uh, segments on this, because, again, it's buried because it's our allies doing the crimes here. But this is, um, this is I guess, an Indian broadcaster uh, talking about a bombing that just happened of Yemen by Saudi Arabia. Let's take a look. A top focus of this hour, now more than 100 people have been killed or wounded in an airstrike on a prison in Yemen. The airstrikes were launched by Saudi-led coalition. Houthi rebels have released gruesome video footage of corpses being pulled out of the rubble. Eight aid agencies operating in Yemen say that those who have been killed include migrants, women and children. The prison is located in Sadar. It was used as a holding center for migrants. Aid workers in Sadar say hospitals are overwhelmed after the attack. According to doctors, without borders, many bodies are still under the rubble. Many people are missing. Global Internet Watchdog has reported that there is a collapse of Internet connectivity. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has condemned the airstrikes listening. The attack on Abu Dhabi is uh, an escalation that is regrettable and, in my opinion, is a, a serious mistake independently of the fact that it is unacceptable. Uh, now, uh, any bombardment uh, that targets civilians on the, or that is not careful enough to... The U.S. has called for calm on both sides. U.S. has urged all parties to de-escalate and abide by the international humanitarian law. So the U.S. is calling for calm on both sides, but only one side is armed to the teeth because of us. That's the Saudi Arabian side. That's the UAE. We arm them relentlessly, nonstop. We're always sending them more and more weapons. Now, Biden had the nerve to turn, to turn around and say, and actually in this case it's the UAE, I believe, not, uh, not necessarily Saudi Arabia, but, you know, Gulf states there, very linked. But um, Biden had the nerve to say, we're only, don't worry, it's okay, we're only giving them defensive weapons, not offensive weapons. Now, Amnesty International immediately came out when the Biden administration said that and went, that's BS. Of course they're using these weapons for offensive bombing. They've been offensively bombing Nonstop, they've bombed uh, open-air markets and mosques and hospitals and civilian infrastructure. And this was an example. It was a detention facility. It was a prison, but it was used to house migrants. And so the migrants are dead. Some reports say 100 or more people are dead. And I tend to believe the higher number because usually uh, in, in the, when a strike happens initially, usually the numbers are, that are reported are, are on the low end. And later on, we learned it was a much higher number. And they say it includes uh, children as well and women. After this, there were protests where people were marching in Yemen and chanting death to America. Gee, I wonder why they were chanting death to America. Could it be because they're bombed with missiles that literally say made in the USA on it? That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. So this is, this is what we're funding. And this is not getting nearly enough coverage in U.S. media. If this was any official U.S. enemy country, we would be talking about this nonstop and saying that, look, what are we going to do? We have to uphold humanitarian law. Regime change is necessary here to protect innocent lives, to protect civilians. If one of our enemy countries bombed a detention facility and killed 100 civilians, 
we absolutely would be saying that. Now, not only are we not saying that because it's our ally, we're not even really talking about it. The news is sort of buried. And this goes to show you the asymmetry when talking about this stuff and how all talk of humanitarian and international law is more of a ruse. Like, the U.S. doesn't care about human rights. We exploit it cynically when we have other reasons for wanting to overthrow countries. And this should absolutely wake you up to that fact, man. Absolutely. I mean, this was a terror attack. Now, the UAE was responding to an attack from the Houthis on, I believe, an oil field of theirs. But understand, not condoning the attack, but the Houthis are reacting in a defensive way to a bombardment which has never stopped from Saudi Arabia and the UAE. This conflict goes back years to the Sunni government in Yemen being overthrown and the Shia Houthis getting into power. And the Sunnis in the Gulf states said, we're not going to allow that. And so they've been waging endless warfare on them. Over 100,000 people are dead. Yemen is being blockaded and starved in a similar way, by the way, to how Afghanistan is being starved by U.S. sanctions right now in an action that's arguably, or maybe not even arguably, that's worse than the war itself, that's worse than the Afghanistan war itself. I mean, there were a lot of casualties in the Afghanistan war. You're going to have even more casualties from famine because we're not allowing Afghanistan to have access to their own money because we think, oh, that would make the Taliban, that would make Biden look weak on the Taliban if he allows Afghanistan to have their own money. So they'd rather let kids starve in the process. Now, they've released a little bit of aid here and there, some money here and there, but they haven't just released Afghanistan's own money back to Afghanistan. And as a result of that, people are going to die. This is how we're acting. This is what we're doing. This is what we're supporting. And all they have when asked a direct question about it is some both sides problem. Oh, both sides need to, uh, need to calm down and abide by uh, international law. How about we just stop arming the side of the conflict that we're arming? How about that? How about we actually live by the values we proclaim to have? and don't arm human rights abusers like Israel, like Saudi Arabia, like the UAE. But we wouldn't do that. There's no way we would do that. And instead, we get stories like this that come out like once a month of either us or our allies uh, killing children. And then in the next breath, we'll turn around and lecture countries like Iran, China, and Russia about how they need to abide by human rights. You have no legitimacy and moral standing when you act like this. None whatsoever. And, you know, you think about the families of the people who were murdered here. How are they going to feel? What are they going to think? What are they going to do? There's a reason why they were chanting death to America. And the question, like, why do they hate us? Well, this is one of the reasons why here. That's not to say that in some instances when it comes to jihadists that it's not, you know, ideological and religious brainwashing, because that is a thing on its own as well. But oftentimes material conditions play into people being susceptible to that kind of ideological and religious brainwashing. So it's a shame that you have to come here to hear this information, but you do. You do. And by the way, so what are the segments we've done today? Let's see. On the brink of World War III over Ukraine, New Great Depression might be coming. The super bubbles might be bursting. And um, a massacre in Yemen, guarantee you all three of those are demonetized, by the way. Guarantee you all three of them are. Not to make this a shameless plug, but 
look, if you support this content, I'd appreciate it if you throw a couple bucks on Patreon because I'm not going to stop talking about these really important issues, even though I know going into it, it's not going to make any money at all because, of course, they're going to demonetize this stuff. It's too heavy. It's too serious. So mainstream media tries to hide this stuff and not talk about it so people aren't educated about it. And then when independent new media cover this stuff as they should, they get demonetized. So there's a natural incentive for new media people not to cover this stuff. Well, I refuse to give in to that incentive. You know, and look, you go check, you go see. How many other new media outlets are even talking about this? Now, I'm not taking shots at them. A lot of the people in new media, I know them, and they're good people, and they genuinely care, but people are going to make that editorial decision, come put, you know, come push or shove and say, look, well, I could cover this, but is it really worth my time? The video is going to be suppressed in the algorithm. It's not going to get out to nearly as many people. Naturally, people don't want to click, click on it as much either, and it's going to get demonetized. So I get it. Like, I understand where they're coming from, but I, I think we have an obligation to talk about this stuff. And it's unfortunate they have to come here to get this stuff, but you do. But this is what's happening with your money in your name. This is what our allies are doing. And we try to cover it up, whitewash it, push it to the side, or act like it doesn't exist. And uh, these people have blood on their hands. And that needs to be noted for the record. All right. Let's go to uh, an MSNBC segment that made me pull my hair out. This segment uh, made me want to pull my hair out. This is MSNBC. This is Chris Hayes' show. Now, he's talking to two people who I like. Look, I like these people. Ed Markey, um, Ro Khanna. These are good. These are, as far as politicians go, these are some of the better politicians in the country. Okay? Uh, but they're going to have a conversation here about Build Back Better and Joe Manchin. And... Uh, it makes me want to shove my nuts in a waffle iron. Take a look. The climate portion of the bill, the $500 billion, already went through a kind of like mansion washing where a bunch of stuff that he, he objected to got taken out, including things that I really support. I think both of you support the clean energy standard. Uh, got taken out. I think we should have it in. But you know what? You can't get a vote for it. You can't get a vote for it. Congressman Connor, do you agree with this strategy? I do. First, let me just say, because I really am on with Senator Markey, no one has done more for the climate in the entire Senate or House than he has. But climate will be the foundation for what we come up with. It's going to be about $500 billion. As you said, Senator Manchin is on board with that. It will be the largest investment in climate that the United States government has ever made. My view is, and I have a good relationship with Senator Manchin, let's give him a chance to say what he is for. I think he's going to be for not just climate, but universal preschool. He's actually for raising taxes on some of the people who are wealthy. He's for negotiating on prescription drugs. I think he can come up with something that will have the consensus, support of the president, support of House progressives. And we should give him that opportunity. And frankly, we should do it with respect. I mean, going and attacking him isn't going to get you the 51 votes. I couldn't agree more. I'm agreeing. We're now all agreeing with each other, which is slightly disappointing because I was all ready to argue with both of you. But, but I do think, I mean, I guess, I guess this is everyone's gotten religion on this because I think that, look, the strategy here, Senator Markey, was we're going to outline this thing and we're going to get Manchin and Cinema to come along. And, you know, you can't invent leverage over a person that you don't have. But you do have leverage. That's the point. You absolutely have leverage, but you have to be willing to use that leverage, and that takes balls, and that takes commitment to the things that you're fighting for, and I don't think that commitment is there in any serious way from Joe Biden. Maybe to one or two of the provisions of his bill, it is there, but not for the entire bill. That's for damn sure. 
So what was the leverage? Look, I, I've said this, I've given this rant so many times, I'm so tired of giving this rant, and you guys are probably tired of hearing it, but say along with me. They're talking about Joe Manchin. His daughter is a criminal. She was involved in price fixing for pharmaceuticals. They have her caught on emails, dead to rights, saying, look, how do we come up with a rationalization to jack this price up? Because that's what we're going to do. I mean, she's basically out there saying, I, Joe Manchin's daughter, love committing crimes. Here I'm going to outline the crimes I will commit. Biden had that leverage. He has that leverage. He has the leverage of the Intercept article, Joe Manchin's Dirty Empire, where he's profiting off of dirty energy at the same time he's on the committee that determines what we're going to do on climate change. You don't think that there are skirting of rules and regulations uh, in his conflict of interest there? Of course there are. Of course, you have leverage over these people, but he doesn't want to use it because it's impolite and it's not civil and it's dirty politics. But guess what? Biden didn't start the dirty politics. He'd be responding to the dirty politics and the corruption of mansion and cinema. So the thing he could have done is said, hey, look, here's the situation. I got Merrick Garland going crazy over there and he's investigating you and he's going to take you down, dog. He's going to take your family down. But maybe I could talk him off the ledge, but you're going to have to do me this favor. You're going to have to vote for this legislation in its original form. And by the way, if you do that, I'm going to sweeten the pot for you, too. I'll make you a hero. I'll make you a hero. You want, a, you want a, a statue built to you in West Virginia? Done. We'll do it. You want more infrastructure money for West Virginia as part of this legislation? Done. You're going to be an absolute superstar. You want, you want to be in my administration? You want somebody else in your family in my administration? Done. Say the word. I will be your best friend. So you're giving it, look, it's, it's a wink and a nod, and it's mafia politics, but it's like, I'll be your best friend or your worst enemy. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. And guess what? He wouldn't have been able to refuse that offer. And then if he does say no, well, then you make his life a living hell. You run ads on West Virginia on TV calling him corrupt Joe Manchin, outlining all of his conflicts of interest and his corruption and the bribery. You, you run ads against bring his daughter up in the ads. I don't care. Go after them. They don't do the right thing. They become public enemy number one. I would wage a vicious brutal public campaign against him. And by the way, at the time these negotiations started, Biden had over a 50% approval rating. He was way more popular than Joe Manchin because he just cut $1,400 checks to everybody. He could have used that leverage. The bill itself was very popular when you look at the individual provisions, and Biden himself at the time was very popular when they started these negotiations. They squandered all of it, all of it. And now the response from MSNBC is, well, gosh, I think that maybe you should be, be nicer to Joe Manchin. How? How could you be nicer to him? They've been... They've epitomized that strategy, guys, and it's gotten us nowhere. Every step of the way, there were reports that Joe Biden would call Joe Manchin JoJo in their meetings. JoJo. He's a backslapping politician. That's what Joe Biden is. And he followed what you're recommending to a T, and it got them nowhere. It got them worse than nowhere. We've gotten nothing through. So now the brilliant idea on MSNBC that's endorsed by the left flank of our elected officials like Ro Khanna is, look, just let Manchin write his own bill. Well, if you were going to take that position, why do we go through all this bullshit in the first place? Why do we draft the original Build Back Better legislation? Why do we have this, these giant negotiations with the different wings of the party? Why did you do any of that? If this is where you were going to go, why not on day one go right to Joe Manchin and hand him a piece of paper and say, you make the bill and then we'll pass it? If you're going to be honest, if you're going to be upfront, if you think that's enough, Ro Khanna and Ed Markey and Chris Hayes, why did, you go, why did we go through all this bullshit? Why do we waste all this time? You bring the paper right up to Manchin and say, go ahead, write us your bill, and then we'll pass it. 
the argument that they're making is for weakness. This is the argument that they're making here. The argument that they're making is the Democratic Party is only as good as its most conservative member, Joe Manchin. Okay, well, if that's your take, then be honest. Because Joe Manchin, in uh, one of the legislative sessions, he voted 60% with Donald Trump. So your argument, this isn't me speaking, this is you speaking, the Democratic Party is 60% Donald Trump. That's your argument. That's what you believe. Now, I personally believe we can do a hell of a lot better than that. We can do a lot better than more than half Donald Trump. That if you play politics right, if you play politics aggressively, if you use strength, if you use your leverage, if you're intelligent and strategic, you could usher in a new FDR-type presidency. And everybody who compared Biden to FDR needs to be launched out of a cannon directly into the sun. Because how wrong were all these people? Their argument is be nicer to Joe Manchin. That's how we get what we want. Well, Biden was as nice as could possibly be every step of the way. He epitomized the strategy that you're arguing for, and you're pretending like it could have positive results when we know it gave us the exact opposite. You're wrong. Own the fact that you're wrong. This is historic, pathetic weakness from these Democratic politicians. Now, there are some who are employing this argument cynically because they never wanted better things to get through. I don't think that's the case for Ro Khanna and Ed Markey. I think they wanted a more robust bill. But they've been ideologically cucked into thinking weakness is the only way. And um, that's the problem with the left, the elected left is that they've been gaslit a thousand ways to Sunday, and they've now internalized this idea that all we could ever have is softball, pretty please politics. And um, this was the thing that Justice Democrats was supposed to fix, and it didn't, because they didn't do the proper strategy, and they weren't committed to it. And so here we are. Here we are. The argument is be nicer to Joe Manchin. Yeah, that was the problem. Everybody was, everybody, uh, everybody was too mean to Joe Manchin. That was the problem. If you really think that, I've got a bridge to sell you. All right, next. So now Republicans are, of course, poised to take over uh, the House of Representatives. And we're already getting a glimpse into the kind of hell that's going to be. Now... Don't get it twisted. It's hell under the Democrats. They are so weak and feckless and pathetic that they get nothing done, while at the same time sort of being proud of the fact that they got nothing done. Um, Well, here's what the Republicans are going to do. Newt Gingrich is talking about the January 6th investigation and what might happen when the GOP takes control. Uh, You're going to have a Republican majority in the House and a Republican majority in the Senate And all these people who have been so tough and so mean and so nasty are going to be delivered subpoenas for every document, every conversation, every tweet, every email, uh, because I think it's clear that these are people who are literally just running over the law, pursuing innocent people, causing them to spend thousands and thousands of dollars in legal fees for no justification. And it's basically a lynch mob. And unfortunately, the Attorney General of the United States has joined that lynch mob and is totally misusing the FBI, and I think when you have a Republican Congress, this is all going to come crashing down, and the wolves are going to find out that they're now sheep, and they're the ones who, in fact, are going to, I think, face a real risk of jail uh, for the kind of laws they're breaking. 
jail for the people investigating January 6th. Jail. Listen, I've been skeptical of this January 6th committee for the very simple reason that Joe Manchin admitted, talking to Republicans, hey guys, listen, you've got to give us something to appease our base, and I don't want to do... Uh, you know, lower prescription drug prices. I don't want to do universal pre-K. I don't want to do elder care. I don't want to do an expanded child tax credit. I don't want to do anything substantive to improve people's lives because I have my donors that I have to serve. So why don't, just give us the political theater. Just give us that. So let's be cool with this January 6th investigation. And then we can all sit around and pretend like we're doing something when we're really not doing anything. And, um, and that'll appease the base enough. So that's why I was skeptical of it. And by the way, we already know what happened. Like, it's on video, even though, you know, YouTube pulled it down when Jordan Chariton put it up. But it's on video. We know what happened. And there's been a number of arrests in what happened on January 6th, number of charges, and people are rightly going to jail. The people who broke laws are going to jail. Great. That's wonderful. So it, it was political theater, largely speaking. Newt Gingrich, instead of realizing, acknowledging this is all political theater and really not much is going to come of it, we did learn that Trump effectively was like, there were memos about doing an actual coup behind the scenes. So we learned that information, which was important and good, and we needed to, to learn that information. Um, but Newt Gingrich, instead of acknowledging, look, this is largely political theater and nothing's going to come of it, what does he do? As per usual with the Republicans, he raises the stakes yet again. And so he goes, I know that, you know, Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't know. This is totally toothless and just political theater. But uh, everybody who is involved in it is going to go to jail or should go to jail or might go to jail. On what planet would that make sense? Look, you're telling me that it's not even arguable that this is something we should investigate or have a hearing over? I mean, I don't know how many people, hundreds of people stormed the Capitol. They were breaking windows and rushing in got the Confederate flag flying in the Capitol building for a little bit, had people go into the chamber and sit at the seat and take pictures of senators' documents. You did have some violence that went down as well. You're telling me it, there's no argument for investigating that? Well, if there's no argument for investigating that, there's no argument for investigating everything. Let me ask you a question. If it was Antifa or Black Lives Matter that stormed the Capitol, and the exact same set of facts happened with, you know, the breaking of the windows and the taking pictures of Senator stuff and sitting in the chamber and uh, being violent. If that same thing happened and it was Antifa or Black Lives Matter, would Newt Gingrich say it's off the table under no circumstance can you uh, investigate this? And if you do investigate it, um, you should go to jail. No, he would view that as like a civic duty and a moral responsibility and upholding law and order. It's amazing how quickly their belief in law and order erodes when it comes to their team. And what, they want, what he wants to do is take political prisoners. Hey, you have the wrong opinion about what happened on January 6th, so maybe you should be locked up. Hey, you're digging up dirt or trying to dig up dirt about the text messages and everything going on behind the scenes through January 6th. So I'm going to say, I don't know, invasion of privacy, you should go to prison. Invasion of privacy. Did Newt Gingrich say anything about uh, the Patriot Act and NSA spying illegally on all Americans? Did he say that's an invasion of privacy? No. But he would say investigating actual crimes might constitute you violating these people's privacy, so maybe you should go to jail. Mm, I don't think so, dog. I don't think so. But look, call it what it is. This is authoritarianism. That's what this is. 
just I, I want to lock up my political opponents because they're investigating something I don't want them to investigate. That's authoritarianism. That's authoritarianism. Now, again, I think it's largely political theater, what they're doing here with this January 6th investigation, but there's an argument that they should be able to do it, of course, and certainly not that it's criminal to engage in this sort of an investigation. It's classic, you know, Democrats are playing checkers and Republicans are playing target practice. That's like, that's the gist of what I see here. Just take it for what it is, Newt. It's largely political theater. Nothing's going to come of it and move on when Republicans get control, but they won't. And we are seeing not just what Newt Gingrich is calling for here. We're also seeing, you know, Trump is trying to put his loyalists in charge in various states so that the next time there's an election, um, he might get away with his shenanigans. He might get away with making the phone call to Georgia and saying, find me some more votes. He might get away with it. Now, he might not have to get away with it because he could just win straight up with how popular, unpopular the Democrats are, but those moves are happening in real time. And uh, he's not even trying to hide his authoritarianism here. It really is something. These guys are odious, man. They really are. They're odious. They're deeply authoritarian. I have many criticisms of the Democrats, but their perspective is psychotic and undemocratic. And shit, at this point, it's almost guaranteed that the Republicans win the House, so you just have to hope they don't go hard in this direction. Okay. Next. Let's talk about United Health. Here we go. So in the midst of this horrific pandemic, one might think, look, I bet the insurance companies are taking a haircut, right? The health insurance companies, so many people are hospitalized and they need care. And yeah, people have been paying their premiums all these years and their co-pays and all that stuff. But is there really enough in the tank to handle like this pandemic where now they're on the hook for paying a lot of stuff? Well, let's see how that's going. Wendell Potter this is on his Substack. While, Ameri- while United Health reports $24 billion in profits, Americans face 200% increases in out-of-pockets over last decade. $24 billion in profits. $24 billion. The most in U.S. history. Stop and think about that. United Health on Wednesday reported 2021 profits of $24 billion on revenue of $287.6 billion. Executives told Wall Street they expect United will be the first insurer to take in more than $300 billion from its customers this year. Instead of giving its health plan customers relief from ever-increasing out-of-pocket requirements, United spent $5 billion last year buying back its own shares of stock, a gimmick that boosts the value of shares and makes shareholders richer. United also paid shareholders $5.3 billion in dividends in 2021. No insurer has ever made that kind of money in U.S. history. It's even more notable when you consider that United is not growing by attracting substantially more new customers. At the end of 2021, United had about 26.6 million people enrolled in its commercial, individual, and employer-sponsored health plans. That's just 700,000 more than the 25.9 million the company had 10 years ago. Most of United's membership and revenue growth now comes from the company's Medicare Advantage plans and the state 
uh, Medicaid programs it manages. In other words, from us as taxpayers, United and other insurers are padding their top and bottom lines by charging their existing commercial customers higher and higher premiums every year. Consider this, an employer-sponsored family policy that costs an average of $15,073 in 2011 cost $22,221 in 2021. That's a 47% increase, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. And during that time, insurers have forced their health plan enrollees to pay more and more out of their own pockets through ever-increasing deductibles, co-payments, and co-insurance. Most Americans now have to pay an average, uh, have to pay an average twice as much out of pocket than 10 years ago. Wow. Wow. Record profits in the middle of a pandemic. Record profits. Why are these uh, companies necessary? The answer is they aren't. Their whole existence is just a middleman between you and your doctor or you and the hospital. They're just a middleman. That's all they do. That's it. So they skim off the top. You pay them, and the famous old Chris Rock joke, is you pay them in case shit. Let me give you some money in case some shit happens. Now, you're giving them money, they're skimming off the top, and then when you actually get sick and you got to go get some help, oftentimes they say, okay, great, now you need to pay a, a, a copay. Okay, great, now we're going to pick up this much, but you have to pay like 5000 out of pocket or 10000 out of pocket, and then maybe we'll pick up the rest. We have to, we have to see. And then what they do is they look to see if they can find any loopholes to force you to pay the whole thing. There, there were whole, before Obamacare, there were whole um, parts of the company that were dedicated to this process called rescission. And rescission is basically trying to find a way for them to wiggle out of making any payments whatsoever. $24 billion in profit for a health insurance company in the middle of a pandemic. They're profiting no matter what. And it's the people who are getting squeezed. There was a public citizen report that came out not too long ago, which found that about 33% of COVID deaths are attributable to uninsurance. So in other words, since we don't have universal health care, since you have 30 million Americans who are uninsured, 80 million Americans who are underinsured, 33% of COVID deaths could have been avoided if these people were insured. 33%. That's a huge number, man. That's like once we officially hit a million deaths, uh, COVID deaths, which, by the way, we're actually technically over that already because of the excess deaths number. When you factor that in with the COVID deaths, you see we're already over a million. That means about 330,000 COVID deaths were avoidable if we had a national health care system, and we don't. 330,000. 5.4 million Americans lost their insurance during the pandemic. So during the worst public health crisis in U.S. history, 5.4 million Americans lost their insurance. Why? Because oftentimes... Uh, insurance is tied to employment, and a lot of people lost their employment because of the economic downturn. Seems like an insane way to craft a system, doesn't it? It seems that way because it is. There was a fair health report that came out and found that COVID-19 patients with no comorbidities or complications, they paid an average of $42,486 for a hospital visit. Holy shit. Uh, we covered a story on the show probably about a year ago now. The 100 most expensive U.S. hospitals charge $1,808 for every $100 of their costs. How's that for a markup? 
Now you say, well, Kyle, that's just the 100 most expensive ones. What about your average hospital in the country? They charge $417 for every $100 of their costs. How's that? For every $100 of their cost, they charge $417. How's that markup? Basically, I've said this before, I'll say it again, our healthcare system, our health insurance system, and our pharma system, they are scams within scams on top of scams. Everybody's scamming everybody, left and right. Everybody's price gouging everybody. So the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst came out with a study years ago. By the way, I think there's over 20 studies that say Medicare for All saves money, over 20 of them. Um, The number they came up with is Medicare for All saves $5.1 trillion over a decade. So in other words, you give everybody health care, you have better outcomes, and it saves $5.1 trillion over a decade. Well, Kyle, how is that possible? That doesn't make any sense. You're giving more people health care, but it's going to save money. I don't even understand how that works. Very simple. What's the story I just told you? United Health made $24 billion last year during a pandemic. $24 billion in profits during a pandemic. Almost like if you cut out the unnecessary, rapacious, mafia-like, for-profit middleman, that money gets saved. Wow, would you look at that? So get the mafia off your back. They don't have to get a cut anymore. And uh, you save $5.1 trillion over a decade. Seems like a no-brainer to me. And it absolutely is a no-brainer. We have single-payer systems all around the world that show exactly how this works. And they work very well, much better than ours. Commonwealth Fund study found we were ranked 11th out of 11 when it came to developed nations with healthcare. The only reason we're not going down this path is because the health insurance companies, probably the healthcare companies, and also um, Big Pharma, they have bought our government. They've bought our politicians. And so the politicians look out for their well-being instead of your well-being. And so it's a racket. It's a scam. But the politicians are in on the scam because they get money from these institutions. And then when they run for office, they get elected, then they repay back the donors who gave them money. And they pay them back with rigged policy in their favor. And so even though it's a no-brainer, even though on paper the answer is obvious, because of the corruption and money in politics, we don't get the obvious answer. I know you guys have heard me do this rant a million times before. I know that the number one criticism of me, which is a legitimate criticism, is that I'm repetitive. But uh, I'm repetitive because the problems didn't change since the last time I talked about them. I talked about them last month, two months ago, a year ago, three years ago, five years ago. The problems are the same. Solutions are the same. We just haven't gotten those solutions because of the corruption. But now you know how bad it is. $24 billion in one year in profits for a health insurance company in the middle of a pandemic. An easy way to end this, an easy way to end this, and to give people the, the health care that they deserve. And unfortunately, uh, we're not moving in that direction, even though we should be. All right. All right, final story of the day, y'all. Final story of the day. So Anthony Blinken uh, was talking about Russia and Ukraine and what's going on there now, and he said something that uh, really caught my eye about what Russia might do next. We've learned about the 
possibility of so-called false flag operations, that is, Russia manufacturing a provocation and then justifying anything it does uh, in, in terms of responding to this manufactured provocation. So the U.S. is concerned about false flag attacks. Now, look, is it possible? Sure. Uh, Putin's amassed up to 100,000 troops on the border of Ukraine, um, and it looks like he's probably going to invade. He took over Crimea in 2014. He went into Georgia during the Bush years. It's very possible. Um, the part that they don't tell you is the history of NATO and how when the Soviet Union broke up and we created the post-Soviet states, they were supposed to be a buffer between Europe and Russia. And ever since then, even though we gave Russia our word, NATO will not get closer to your border, we've creeped closer and closer and closer to their border. So from the Russian perspective, they view that as aggression on the part of the West. Um, that's a part of the story that you're not told. Now, again, it is possible that they do some sort of false flag thing and then go in, but my guess is even if they go in, which is very likely, they'll uh, limit, limit it to just the ethnically Russian areas, similar to what they did in Crimea, because uh, they know if they go to the ethnic Ukrainian areas, then there will be vicious fighting, and if there's vicious fighting, then you drag in the West, and then you're off to the races, and it could be World War III. Okay. Um, so it's possible he does some sort of false flag, Putin does, to, to get us to that point. But it's so funny hearing the U.S. now, this is the first time, and maybe the last time, any U.S. government officials will ever bring up the, even the notion of a false flag attack. Because they would call that conspiracy theory if you ever say it in regards to them, even though we know the U.S. government does false flag attacks and has done them a number of times. Classic example, Operation Northwoods. That was a proposed false flag operation against American citizens that originated with the U.S. Department of Defense uh, in 1962, and the proposal called for, the, for CIA operatives to stage and commit acts of terrorism against the American military and civilian targets, and then blame it on the Cuban government. And they were going to use that as a justification for war against Cuba. And um, they say, reading the ever-trusty Wikipedia page on this, they say, the possibilities detailed in the document included the possible assassination of Cuban immigrants, sinking boats of Cuban refugees on the high seas, hijacking planes to be shot down or given the appearance of being shot down, blowing up a U.S. ship and orchestrating, the violent, orchestrating violent terrorism in U.S. cities. The proposals were rejected by then-President John F. Kennedy. And by the way, Kennedy eventually wound up dead. Um, then you have the Gulf of Tonkin incident. The Gulf of Tonkin was used in Vietnam as a reason to escalate and do a full-scale ground invasion. Uh, so they say about that, this, the outcome of these two incidents, there were two separate Gulf of Tonkin incidents. One of them was real. The second one was made up by the U.S. It was a false flag to get us more involved in Vietnam. The outcome of these two incidents was the passage by U.S. Congress of the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which granted U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson the authority to assist any Southeast Asian country whose government was considered to be jeopardized by, quote, communist aggression. The resolution served as Johnson's legal justification for deploying U.S. conventional forces and the commencement of open warfare against North Vietnam. So in other words, uh, classic psychological projection is what's being done here by Blinken. They might do a false flag attack because that's something they would do. We have a history of doing false flag attacks. Now, again, I don't put it beyond Russia. I'm not one of these uh, lefties who thinks that as long as you posture against American imperialism, you're, like, by definition, benign. No. There's, there's also 
Chinese imperialism and Russian imperialism and any large state that has too much power can become imperialistic, of course. So I don't put it beyond them, but it is hilarious that the pot is calling the kettle black here. Because there's been no real reckoning with our own history of false flag attacks, and I'm sure there's still conversations and talks about it going on now, doing stuff along those lines today. We haven't evolved out of it, this idea that, like, well, now the CIA doesn't meddle in other countries when they used to. Really? Who's not even up to believe that? I mean, some people are. It's probably the pervasive view in mainstream media, but leftists aren't naive enough to believe that. Like, oh, the CIA sort of cleaned up their act. I believe that. What? No, not at all. So we'll see what happens with Ukraine, but uh, this will probably be the first and last time you ever hear some U.S. official bringing up a false flag attack. All right, guys. Love you. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. I'm out. Peace.